turn in your own copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you have perfect memory, you will remember that I preached on this many years ago. But Jesus preached on the same thing several times, so I think I'm in good company. This is the word of the Lord in Acts chapter 6. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father in in heaven, our God, we do ask that you would... Uh, Help us now as we come to your word, that your spirit would work within us, that we may understand, believe, and grow. Lord, we thank you that you are obviously giving clear and demonstrable ways of how you are working in your people here, to see how you've used the preaching of the word to bring people from death into life this year. And to bring people into abundant life as we grow, Lord, may it be that we would be blessed even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Letting you into the mind of the pastor, there are some passages in the scriptures that are scary to preach. There are some that are intimidating. I I personally, I hate preaching on giving and tithing because a substantial portion of what you give goes into my pocket. It's how we eat. It's awkward to talk about money. There are some passages where they're so complicated that it's challenging to preach because, oh my goodness, how do you take the complexity and the depth and richness of beauty of God's word and reduce it to 30 five minutes of preaching. There are some passages, Job scares me. Those middle chapters, all of them so redundant and repetitive and they're hard. Not this passage. This is not the passage that I dread coming to or that I'm afraid of how to handle or nervous of how to deal with. And the reason being is this is a passage more than I think almost anywhere else in the scriptures 
where it is a teaching elder's cry for help. There's probably no passage more clear in the scriptures where the pastors get to see their weakness and their need written so clearly in such a way that the people are like asked to help. So this sermon serves twofold purpose already. One is certainly to explain the word of God, to proclaim what God has for you. But secondly is this is my cry for help as well. We get to the passage and Luke is a master storyteller as he has been demonstrating all the way through the book of Luke. And now as we get into Acts and this little pericope, this story, these short verses follows that elegant, masterful story arc that good literature tells. It starts with a problem, a a serious problem. Oh no, what are we going to do? How are we going to resolve the problem? Ah, Conflict is introduced. And the, the tension builds and maybe there's another solution. Maybe we can find an easy way to fix it. And the tension builds. And it builds to finally ah, the climax, the pinnacle of the story where the solution is proposed and the tension is resolved and peace returns and you end in a happy place, much like how you began. It's how good literature functions, the classic story arc. And we're going to look at those aspects of the arc with a handful of key principles kind of drawn out. We're going to look at the problem, we're going to look at the solution, and we're going to look at the conclusion following the pattern. And the problem in Acts is a good problem right now, is the church of God is growing. If you're in the ESV, you've got to turn back a page to see where chapter 5 and 4 kind of are. But as you look through and thumb through the pages, you get to see the church is exploding. She's growing in a wonderful fashion, and it's magnificent. Chapter 4, verse 4, many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men added that day came to about 5,000. Oh, wow, that's a church growth model that is spectacular. Chapter 5, verse 12 and such, you have signs and wonders that are being done. You have miracles being performed by the apostles. The church is in the middle of the most spectacular time of growth in human history. It's amazing. But coupled with the amazing growth and development, you have a a, a tone of sobriety. It's not like the church is growing and we're going to throw like a, you know, amazing Cinco de Mayo party every Sunday. There's a a sense of sobriety that's coupled with it. In chapter 5, if you turn back, you see, how does the chapter start? Well, it starts with a man and a woman lying to the Holy Spirit and being struck dead in the middle of the church. Whoops. I mean, there's, there's no goofing around after that. I mean, I imagine even, even the seven, eight-year-old little boys had a sense of like, I'm not going to goof around in church anymore. I mean, if God killed them and they were adults, I don't know what he'll do to me. 
And then even in the previous chapter there, five as well, you have the apostles arrested and they're being forced to testify. And so you have both of these kind of spectacular themes operating in the church with this amazing growth and the optimism and joy and hope that would come with that. But at the same time, there's seriousness. There's depth. There's a bit of sobriety. I mean, this is life and death, literally. I mean, people drop dead in church. Yeah, take them out and bury them out back. You got the guys in charge being arrested. They might be killed. Who knows what's going to happen? In the midst of this spectacular best case scenario of the church. I mean, that's where I would gently put kind of verse one when we start. Your best case scenario for the church the first thing I want you to notice is, notice how quickly and deftly the devil can succeed in dividing the church. It's staggering how quick and elegant and efficient his division is. I mean, when we begin chapter 6, the church is in its best case scenario. It's growing, it has strong leadership, it has committed members, and oh yeah, by the way, they're watching church discipline happen in front of them, God killed them, and they're all seriously committed, and the church is flourishing, and it's spectacular. And from best case scenario to catastrophic problem was a verse. I mean, the way Luke tells it, it it literally is a verse. 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So literally, the, the, the preachers are preaching and teaching every day, and they're doing it in the worship service, and they're doing it in the homes. They've got Bible studies coming out their ears. And then the next verse, literally, oh yeah, by the way, the church has been split. Whoops. And the complaint is, it's a real complaint, and it's actually quite, quite serious. In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And you would be reminded, you know this, but they didn't have Medicare, Medicaid, or welfare. They have none of the state programs. It was uh, Rome. They had the state program of tough luck. And if you didn't have it, it was tough luck. I'm sorry. And so for the widows to have any sort of income, they were heavily reliant upon the church. They can't go to the government for help. Some of them wouldn't have had children. They would have gone there first. But if they don't have children, where else would they go? Their options are starve to death or the church. And that's a serious issue. I mean, let's not, again, let's not minimize the complaint that they have. This is a life or death issue. This is not, oh no, my favorite pew seat was taken. This is, oh no, my special parking place was filled. This is not, oh no, they picked maroon for the new building. This is, if I don't get food from the church, I will die. I mean, that's legitimate. That's a big deal. We're not, let's not minimize. And then on top of that, we actually have not just the neglecting of the widows, those that should be cared for, but we have the, the Hellenist problem. And that's a term some would be reminded of their middle school studies. Some don't remember those at all. Uh, Hellenists would refer to those of Greek culture. 
And so now you have a contrast of uh, the complaint is not just that some widows are being left out, but it's those from Greek backgrounds are being neglected and those from Jewish backgrounds are not. You have the very subtle whisperings of racism. You're, You're taking care of the Jews. Why would you not take care of the Gentiles? Why would you not take care of those that come from Greek background? Why would you? Are we less than you? Are we second class citizens? Why would you not feed our widows when you feed your own? You see, this is, this is a masterful complication for the church. I mean, it, it's devastatingly effective by the devil. That the issue that they have to resolve now is it's life or death for some of their people, which would have been a big deal to them. I mean, let's be honest. And it's nationalistic, and racial, and striking at the very core of who the church is. And it shows up literally in one verse change. That was the first thing to call attention to so that you're aware is to notice how quickly and how elegantly, how how efficiently the devil can succeed in dividing God's church. And I would say that that danger is no less real here. I mean, you look at our history, we're very much like how chapter 6 starts. It's the high point of Christ Ridge's history. Again, I mean, new members, new converts, the Lord's working. We got families sick out our ears, and look, we got seats that are still full. The Lord is gracious. This church is, it's amazing what God is doing. We're worrying about how, how to build a building. Where do you find a million dollars to build a building? How, how is that going to happen? We're worrying about all of these amazing and spectacular things. We have so much joy and delight. We enjoy one another. The fellowship is as rich now as it ever has been. And that should at the same time go, danger, Will Robinson, danger. And you all know I'm a soccer fan, but they always joke and say that the hardest lead to protect in soccer is a two to nothing lead. When you're doing really, really well, it's the hardest time to win because you grow complacent and lazy and then they stick a goal in and then suddenly it gets close and you get all nervous and twitchy and panicky. And then by that point, it's too late. They score the second one and then the third one and then you lose. And it happens all the time. We're sitting on a 2 nothing victory right now. I mean, the church is thriving. It's amazing what God is doing. We can rejoice and be glad in his mercies given to us. I mean, this is the most fun calendar year I have had in my 10 years at this church. Watching conversions happen in my office is spectacular. It's staggeringly fun. But the danger, again, is the devil knows what he's doing. He's had a long time to study human character. He's very clever, and he's very effective. And if he can get it over on the apostles, I'm not as clever as they are. Tom's not as clever as they are. Chad's not as clever as they are. And we don't have miracles in our pocket to help. A sense of caution might be appropriate as we go about the growth and the business of this church as we are, again, as good as it gets, it's fantastic. The Lord is so gracious. 
May we not grow complacent or lazy. You know, when we, 10 years ago, were down to, can we pay our bills this month? You pray a lot because you know how desperate you are. There's a natural temptation for us as a church to stop praying quite so much because all we got to worry about now is, is everybody going to be well today and are we going to have to have overflow chairs and get the young men to stand in the back? Sorry, Sam. You know, is, is, that, is, that, is that what our Sundays become now? You notice that you see how easy it is to stop praying because you're no longer guarded and cautious. The problem shows up and it's a staggeringly complicated one. Oh no, what do we do? How do we solve these widows that need their food? Oh no, how do we solve these Greek background Christians? They feel like they're being left out. What do we do? Ah! And the 12 get together, the apostles, and they summon the full number of disciples. They get the church there together. And there's an implied solution that you would expect to be the answer. I mean, you would expect the apostles to get everybody there together and to have the the congregational meeting where all the church comes in and you, you got the nursery workers so the kids can be in the back and we all sit together and we talk. And you would expect the session to stand there and say, you know what, we're sorry. We messed up. We'll do better next time. Sorry. I mean, that, that, that's what you would expect from them, actually. And it's interesting. What do they do? <laughs> we have more important things to do. I'm sorry. Wow. I mean, that stings a little bit, but okay. Um, I'm, oh, all right. But Luke, again, master storyteller, is, is kind of luring us in. He's, he's putting kind of a bait out there to see if we bite on it. And that's the second thing that we're going to see here is this, the second danger is actually the wrong solution. The danger of mission creep, it's to get the wrong people doing the right things. You know, feeding the widows, is that an important thing? Absolutely. If they die, that would be, we'll say, unfortunate being a bit sarcastic. It would be terrible. They need to be taken care of. This is what the church is. This is who they are. This is what they do. But the key is to get the right people doing the right things. And there's constantly a temptation to get the wrong people doing the right things and to think that that's the right solution. When a job has to get done, it needs to get done to be willing to compromise on who does it in order to make it happen. Again, you would expect the apostles to stand up front and say, "Uh, we're so sorry, we'll work harder in the future. We're so sorry, uh, we'll make sure that this doesn't happen again. We're so sorry, it'll be different next time. And it's interesting, they give no apology. They don't. In fact, actually, when they stand up front, they say it's not right that we should give up the task we've been called to do. Find someone else to do it. And this is where I have to say the danger of selfish preaching is quite real. Because there's a very real danger of that mission creep happening again here today. As we continue to to grow, 
and the church continues to flourish, and we've got to figure out how to build a building. Because we know we, as soon as we build it, we, we're going to fill it. We've got people coming out our ears. There's a very real temptation to get me doing the wrong things. To take me away from Sunday school and Bible study and take me away from preparation and preaching. To take me away from school, which is honing my mind sharper than it's ever been. And to get me to do something good, but not my job. Hear that? Good, but not my job. The danger is real that we do the same thing to Chad and we do the same thing to Tom. And we do the same thing to Josh. We do the same thing to Scott. The danger is very real that we constantly get the wrong people doing the right things. And it works at all levels. Session, diaconate, our committees, our nursery workers, our Sunday school teachers. The danger of mission creep. Why? Why is that an important thing? Why is that such a big deal? Well, because the apostles actually here give us a very helpful note as they explain. They give a priority system for the church to operate on. It's not right what? For us to forsake the most important thing to do a very important thing. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. It's not right that we stop devoting ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word in order to be administrators. Now, notice it's not saying that the administration is poor or bad or wicked or lesser in that regard, but it is connecting it to the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church leadership? At its core, it is preaching the word, being devoted to prayer. It is the word and prayer, word and sacrament. You want to continue to have the church thrive and grow and be blessed. You work hard to make sure that I can do those things. So I don't have to do the other things. One, I'm not very good at the other things, I'll be honest. But two is so I can think on these things, so I don't have to multitask. So they come up with a real solution. The fault solution was for the elders to apologize and for them to work harder and for them to do better. And instead, they come up with a real solution. And their solution is, is just genius. It's elegant. It's sophisticated. It's God's plan. And it is a replication of the Old Testament. It's Moses and Jethro. It's a recapturing of what happens in ancient Israel. What do they do? Uh, they say, look, it's not right for us to get distracted with good things, but aren't our things. Therefore, go... Pick out seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will we'll ordain them, we'll appoint them to this duty. And so they pick them, they lay hands on them, and they go. And I would like to highlight and call attention to how great God's gift is to his church to give different men and women different callings. I think that's certainly the point that needs to be highlighted here and one that God is doing so is to call attention to how he has designed his church to work. 
You confessed it actually earlier. You may not have caught it. I know sometimes the confessions move a little bit quickly, but how does Christ execute the office of a king? How does Christ function as a king in his church? You ever think about that? How, how is he a king? Christ executes the office of a king. He acts like a king. How? In calling out of the world a people for himself. So he, he calls saints to himself. He makes the church. And giving that church officers, laws and censures, by which he governs them and they grow. It's interesting to think that part of Christ's kingly ministry in the church is through the officers of the church. It's how he's exercising his authority. It's how he's caring for his people here. It's how he's watching over us. You ever think about that? When you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is fulfilled partially in officer training and ordination and installation. You know, when Robert graduates from seminary and gets to be ordained as a preacher, when Jeremiah gets ordained as a chaplain, it will be part of God fulfilling his kingly office in Christ. It's how God rules his church, and it's specifically his mercy that has done this. Ephesians 4, Paul walks us through this same kind of thinking. In verse 8, he says, and I'm going to read this and kind of comment as I read. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Talking about Jesus, he gives gifts to men. Verse 10, skipping ahead, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fulfill all things. Verse 11, here it is. What are the good gifts that he gave to men? That's the question. Verse you know, 8, he gave good gifts. Verse 11, he gave them apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints for work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. It's very interesting, Paul's argument. He's using a psalm that he's quoting to show the victor train as, as the, the victor, the giant you know, who wins the battle comes in and he distributes uh, the, you know, the, the booty that he's won. He distributes the, the gold and the jewels. He gives gifts to all of his people. And as Jesus returns to glory, he gives gifts to his people. And interestingly, in Ephesians 4, what are the gifts that he gives? It's the officers of the church. It's very interesting. You would not think that. I would be anywhere near the top of the list. And these are designed to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, all the way to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. The Lord has designed for his officers to be his good gift, to be his mercy given to the church so that we all together might grow. Now, on a special side note, it is interesting here also as well how specifically it delineates what these kinds of men are like. We're going to talk about that the next two weeks. What are these men like, these good gifts from God? Is it that every officer is a good gift from the Lord? Well, I guess some are uh, in a disciplinary fact, I guess. But what, what are the quality of these officers supposed to be? Therefore, brothers, verse 3, pick out from among you seven men. Okay, seven deacons. This is the foundation of the diaconate. Of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. A spiritual office designed for a spiritual task. We don't need a marketing firm to come in. 
We don't need a leadership institute. We don't need uh, seven ways of highly effective church whatever. We need spiritual men. Spiritual men. And hopefully you hear a theme from me over the next month as we go through the officer nomination process. I would rather have a dumb spiritual man as an officer than a genius hard-hearted man. Get that. If you have to choose, what do you take? Really dumb. I'm cool with that. Spiritual. Versus infinitely gifted, but hard-hearted. You see, the, the deciding factor of this is, it is the spirituality of the man, and it makes sense why. Because Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and his gifts are spiritual gifts. They're spiritual officers. They're designed to be godly encouragements, to be spiritual helps. We need spiritual officers. doesn't matter how much money a man makes. doesn't matter how elegantly he speaks. It doesn't matter if he's white collar or blue collar. It matters if he's a godly man. In fact, actually, it, scriptures confirm it here because you see the deacons that are chosen and ordained here, uh, they're going to be some pretty staggering guys and do some staggering things here in just a moment, don't they? That next heading, if you have your ESV, is Stephen is seized. Stephen the deacon is seized. He then begins to preach and then is murdered for it. And then in chapter 8, Philip is evangelizing, and he's the only one courageous enough to actually be out doing it. All the other guys are so cowardly, they're hiding, and your average Christian's not evangelizing properly, and Philip's the guy out there doing it. So the Lord transports him across, halfway across the country in order to have him evangelize the way that you want. Spiritual men with spiritual abilities and spiritual gifts. Why? Well, because again, the design is these are to be God's gift to the church. The same way that he gives us joy in one another and hope in Christ, and he gives us faithfulness and gentleness and love and self-control, he gives us officers. Why? For our own good. Notice what happens. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Verse 4, we're not going to do this. Somebody else is going to do it. Deacons, go do your thing. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, the whole congregation, the churches. They're like, that's a great idea. You guys continue doing what you're supposed to do, and we're going to have some guys do what they need to do, and it's going to be great. And so the church picks seven guys. And interestingly, this debate over taking care of widows and this debate between Greeks and Hebrews, what do they do? They pick seven Greeks, seven minorities, seven of the lesser represented crew, seven from the violated party. They say, look, we need guys to administer it. Fine, great. You guys do it. All of you seven, you're wonderful. You go run the show. That's great. And the whole congregation is pleased with the officers that they have elected. And then verse 7, as if that's not enough that the congregation is pleased and the widows are cared for, but the word of God continued to increase. Why did the word of God continue to increase? This is interesting. Why did the word? 
Because the apostles had time to do it. Why did the word grow? Because the elders had time to focus on that. Because the deacons were doing their job, the people of God were doing their job, the word of God increases, the number of disciples multiply greatly in Jerusalem, great many of the priests become obedient to the faith, and the church continues to explode. God gives blessing to his word. Now, obviously, you can tell this is a personal sermon more than normal. But I think more than most passages, this kind of describes very much where we're at. A church that is richly blessed far more than we deserve, which would not be at all. Far more than we can even understand how God has poured out blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing and is continuing to do so. We just added a dozen people. I've got at least a half a dozen more that I need to get through. Just haven't had time. I do recognize, and Tom and I pray for this every Friday morning, that the devil's going to work very hard to divide us. He knows it, and I know it. That's why we pray for you. I would ask that you pray for you too. That you would pray for the church, that the devil would not be successful in that. That he would not be effective in that. And that his lies would just pass away like the morning mist. And then secondly, pray for godly spiritual men. Again, we pray, uh, this is the middle part of our prayer time every hour. We pray for the church and we pray for godly men to be raised up. We pray for godly men to be raised up from inside the church and for godly men to transfer in. And we pray for our children. That a generation yet unborn would hear the gospel because of the godly officers that are the little ones sitting in the pews and in the back that God would raise up spiritual men. And may it be that that would be fulfilled in this church. Because as we have spiritual men, will this church flourish? Absolutely. Now, to be fair, does this in any way diminish the function of the ladies of the church? Is the sermon largely geared toward men? No, of course not. Because what was the whole point? What was, what was the big false solution that was presented? The wrong solution is to get the wrong people doing the right things. Ladies, we need you active in your ministry. Because if I have to do it, it will be a mess. And if you do it, it will be lovely and wonderful, as you all are. We don't want our elders doing it because it will be a mess. Or our deacons. Ladies, your ministry is yours. <coughs> We need you to do it too, so that the church will be blessed as God administers his kingdom in great kindness and mercy and grace. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We ask your blessing for all of your church, but particularly this portion. Raise up godly men, we pray, and our church will be blessed through our officers. Raise up godly women to bless us in their service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.